Thank you for checking out the messages of New Grace. We are a group of believers in Roanoke, Virginia, who are dedicated to loving God, loving others, and serving others. We hope that today's message is a blessing to you and your family. Get your Bibles open to 1 Kings chapter 17. We're starting a new series this morning, looking at the life of Elijah and Elisha. Uh, two of the uh, most well-known prophets in Old Testament Israel. Uh, but before we get into that, I want to ask you a question, and I want an answer. Um, however, please think before you shout something out. I do not want a name. So if I say, hey, blah, 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 don't give me a name of somebody. I want you to think about the, root, the, the big issue here. What is the biggest problem with our American culture. Again, don't say Democrats or Republicans. Don't give me a senator's name. What about him? Oh, pride. I thought you said Christ. Okay. All right, pride. Anybody else? Come on, we're believers, folks. What do we think the biggest problem is? Christians not being Christians. No belief in God. Brian, you got something? Entitlement. All right. Now, what I'm going for is what Rhonda said. We believe that probably a lot of us would agree that the biggest problem facing our culture is people don't believe in God anymore. We've, we've, and we've said it. We've kicked them out of our schools. We've kicked them out of every, every area we can. Even now in California, it's illegal for churches to get together and worship God and sing praises to God because of this pandemic. And so we, we look at the way our culture's going and we think, man, the biggest problem with America is the fact that people don't believe in God anymore. But that's not really true. Statistically, there are more religious people in our culture than there are non-religious people. Atheists, those who believe there is no God, they only make up 4% of the population. Agnostics, now agnostics are people who believe there is a God, but he just doesn't care or get involved in the earth and the matters of mankind. Agnostics make up only about 5% of the population. Now, it is true that those who identify themselves as Christians has dropped from 77% to 65%, in the last decade, but the percentage of nuns. Now, nuns are those people who believe there is some form of higher power. There is a God. There may be many gods, but there is a God. They're just not sure which one it is. That number has increased from 12% to 17%. So the question that most Americans struggle with isn't, is there a God? But which God is the right God? And we've all heard the argument about monotheism or pluralism, where people say, you know, God is, is like, it's like God's on top of a mountain. And all of us get to God on our own path. You go up one side of the mountain, I go up another side of the mountain, and we'll both get there eventually. And we may, we're going to choose different routes, we're going to have different experiences, but we're all going to get to God in our own way. People today think that there is a bit of truth to every religion. No one is 100% right, 
and no one is 100% wrong. That's the world that we live in today. And surprisingly, that's the world that Israel lived in during much of the Old Testament history. So for the next few weeks, we're going to study the lives of some Old Testament characters that God raised up during this time in their history to help bring Israel back to God. Uh, Israel was founded upon the concept of monotheism. Monotheism is the belief that there is one God and his name is Jehovah. That there is one God above all, there are no other gods, there is one and only God. But where we come to in 1 Kings, uh, events have changed the nation of Israel and they've kind of walked away from this belief. They've been through a civil war that has broken the nation up into two different nations, the northern kingdom, which is called Israel, and the southern kingdom, which was called Judah. Now, the northern kingdom had a string of terrible, wicked, evil kings. They had 200 years of bad kings, 19 terrible, wicked, ungodly kings. The worst of all began to rule in 857 B.C., and his name was King Ahab. He married a woman from a neighboring nation of Sidon called Jezebel. Now, Sidon was a, a pagan nation filled with many false gods, and when Jezebel came to Israel to be the queen, she brought a couple of these gods with her, and she set up temples to them. The gods she brought with her were the god Baal and Azeroth. Now the people, they went along with this because they were so far away from God. Baal and Azeroth, they, they promised prosperity and protection during a time when the people of Israel felt that they needed it. And as time went by and the worship of these gods became darker and darker, it, it culminated in, in parents sacrificing their children to these gods. And Jezebel, she was more than just the queen. We saw last week and in this culture, in this time period, that queens really didn't have a lot of authority, didn't have a lot of power. They were just there for the king. But Jezebel was more than just the queen. She really was the puppet master behind everything. She controlled Ahab. She had him do what she wanted to be done, and she had him obey him. And so everything that Ahab did, it was controlled by Jezebel. And after a few years, she had hundreds of prophets and priests of God slaughtered, and she set up her own false prophets and priests in their place. And so for the first time in history, Israel was dealing with a polytheistic society where they believed and they worshipped many different gods. Now, the, the god Baal, he's, he's found throughout the Old Testament, and we tend to think of it as one god, the god Baal. But Baal was not a god. Baal was a title. The, the word Baal literally means Lord. And so Baal was not one big god. Baal was a title for a lot of different gods that existed in this culture. Uh, there were different Baals for different problems, different needs. There was a Baal of fertility. There was a Baal of medicine, a Baal of the harvest, a Baal of success. And the one that we're dealing with in 1 Kings here that Jezebel brought with her was the Baal of nature. This is the God that controlled nature, controlled the weather, controlled the harvest, controlled everything. And God, 
he looks at the state of Israel and he sends a man to bring Israel back to him. And that man's name is Elijah. The entire point of, of Elijah's life was to show Israel that God was the one true God. That there weren't a lot of different gods to worship, but there was one God. His name was Jehovah, and he was to be worshipped above all. Elijah's name actually means the Lord is God. That, that was his calling. That was the purpose of his life, to show that the Lord is the only true God and bring Israel back to a place of worshiping him. The, the one event that stands out in Elisha's life is, is found in 1 Kings chapter 18. We'll get there in a couple weeks. But this is the battle between Elisha and the prophets of Baal. We all know the story where he goes up on Mount Carmel and he has a, a, a standoff between hundreds of the prophets of Baal. And he says, well, we'll see which God is the true God once and for all. And he gives him a couple hours to call down fire from heaven for their God. It doesn't work. And then he, of course, calls down fire from heaven from Jehovah. And the, the altar bursts into flames. And we'll get into it next week. It's an incredible victory. That's the central event of his life. This, this battle on Mount Carmel is to show Israel once and for all who the real God is. And biblical scholars believe and teach that every event around and, and every other event in Elisha's life surrounds this singular event. Our world is a lot like Elisha's. People don't understand and recognize that there is one true God, so they end up worshiping a lot of different gods. And so because of that, we can learn a lot from Elisha. We can learn how to be more effective and have a greater impact in our society to showing that God is the one true God. Have you ever, have you ever felt like you're not really making an impact for God in your family, in your workplace, in your neighborhood, with the people God has given you? When you go back to school, that you, you're really not making that much of an impact. You're, you're just kind of being not used as best as you can. Elisha shows us how to do that, how to make an impact from, for God, how to make an impact that changes people's lives and draws people back to God. And the encouraging thing is, is that when God wants to make an impact for his kingdom, he doesn't choose an army. He looks for one man. He looks for one man or one woman who's willing to stand up and be used for him. For one man or woman who is committed to God, they can do more for the kingdom of God than an entire army fighting for him. And that's what God wants from us today. He wants to raise up some of you to be Elishas in your workplaces and Elishas in your families and Elishas in your school and, and wherever you are. He wants you to be Elisha to your co-workers and your neighbors. God is looking for one parent to stand up for him and his family, one teen to stand up for purity in their group of friends. And maybe you're, here, you're listening today and you're one of those people who don't know for sure if there is one God or which God is correct. You're not sure which one is the way to salvation. You're not sure if you're to worship the one God or right. And these, these stories that we're going to look at through this series are going to show you that Jehovah is the one true God. Polytheism isn't a new concept. It's as old as the world itself. 
Those that say that all God's the same haven't really been paying attention. So today we're going to look at how God prepared Elisha for the conflict that was the center of his life and his ministries. And the stories of Elisha, they fall into a, a pattern. There's always a big picture and a small picture. We always see what God is doing in Israel and what God is doing in the life of Elisha. God had one obstacle that he had to conquer in Elisha's life to be able to, to use him. And it's the same obstacle he's got to use for all of us. It's the same obstacle he has to conquer in our lives so he can use us. And when he, when he conquers this one thing, he becomes the source of power throughout our lives. So look at your Bibles in, in uh, 1 Kings chapter 17, starting in verse number 1. The Bible says, And Elisha the Tishbite, who was of the inhabitants of Gilead, said unto Ahab, As the Lord God of Israel liveth, before whom I stand, there shall not be dew nor rain these years, but according to my word. Now remember, the, the Baal, the God that, that Jezebel and Ahab are worshiping is the God of nature. The God that controls the weather. That controls the rain. Here's, here's Elisha saying, hey, it's not going to rain at all in this area until I say so. Because my God's in control and my God gave me the authority to keep the rain at bay. And so he is directly challenging the God that, that Ahab and Jezebel worship. Elijah is proving that Baal doesn't have the power that the people have been told that he does. But this is also bad news for the whole nation of Israel. There's no rain, which means there's no crops which means you have no vegetables or fruits to eat. You have no grain to make in the bread. You have nothing to feed your animals, so your animals die. You have nothing to drink. This is going to be a bad time for the nation of Israel. Livestock are going to starve. People are going to starve. Israel is about to face a terrible famine and a terrible drought, and Baal can't stop it. Let's keep reading verse number 2. <clears throat> And the word of the Lord came unto him, saying, came unto Elijah, Get thee hence, and turn thee eastward, and hide thyself by the brook Cherith, that is before Jordan. And it shall be that thou shalt drink of the brook, and I have commanded the ravens to feed thee there. So he went and did according to the word of the Lord, for he went and dwelt by the brook Cherith, and that is before Jordan. And the ravens brought him bread and flesh in the morning, and bread and flesh in the evening, and he drank of the brook. Now, this, this verse right here, it proves that you, those people who walk with God are not vegetarians and they're not vegans. God fed him with flesh. So if you love Jesus, you eat meat. Amen? All right. Seriously, though, when God feeds his people, he always gives them meat. But we see in these verses the, the big picture of what God is doing in Israel and the little picture of what he's doing in Elisha's life. God is teaching Israel that he is the one true God. That's the big picture. He's showing Israel once and for all, your false gods can't help you. Your false gods are weak and they don't exist. I am the one true God that needs to be worshipped. But he's not teaching Elisha that. Elisha knew that. Elisha believed that. He's teaching Elisha another lesson. And the lesson 
that God is teaching Elijah is one that anyone that's going to be used by God has to learn. And here it is. God uses the weak, not the strong. Elisha was a man just like any man. The Bible even says that early in Hebrews that he was a man of like passions like us. He was, he was just like us. Elisha had taken care of himself his entire adult life. He had a job. We don't know what it was, but he had one because he, he, he took care of himself. He had a home. He, had, he provided food for himself. And so he had done everything for himself. God took that away from him. Now Elisha is in a place where he had to completely depend on God for the food that he ate and the water that he drank. <coughs> God sent Elisha to the brook Cherith. Now the brook Cherith, the word literally means to cut down. God had to cut down Elisha to use him. So this, this story here, it teaches us three things that God has to do to be able to use us for his honor and his glory. And here's the first one. Before God can use us, he must break us. There are a lot of times that God does things in our life to break us. And we have a hard time figuring out what he's doing or, or why he's doing it. Someone you relied on lets you down. You lose someone close to you. Something you've depended on is taken away. Maybe you get passed up for an opportunity that you felt you deserved or felt you needed, and we, we don't understand what God is doing. Why would God do this to us? Why would God allow these things? But we need to understand that God is working in those things for our good. God is working to remove the false idols from our lives. Now, we don't have false idols like they did in Israel's day where we're, we're worshiping false gods and we're going to false temples and sacrificing animals or our children. We're not doing any of that. But we all have false idols, things that we rely on more than we rely on God. And God has to take those away. Because if we're relying on anything besides him, God can't use us. So he has to break us down to be able to use us. God is working to teach us to completely and fully rely on him. A.W. Tozer said this, before God can use a man greatly, he must hurt him deeply. God is at work in your disappointment and your pain. He's removing your idols. He's removing your false sources of trust and joy and hope. He is teaching you to depend on Him so He can use you because when we think we're strong, God has to show us how weak we are. Before God can use us, He must break us. Second thing is God's got to do to make us depend on God, we must be weak. Elijah's strength was his greatest weakness. God has to make us weak so we can find our strength in him alone. You know, Paul said in 2 Corinthians 12, he said, and he said unto me, my grace is sufficient for thee, 
For my strength is made perfect in weakness. Most gladly, therefore, will I glory in my infirmities that the power of Christ may rest upon me. That's not something we like doing. None of us like to boast about our weaknesses. You know, you go for a job interview and the the prospective employer always says, what's your biggest weakness? You know, everybody says, oh, well, I'm just, I'm too much of a perfectionist. I'm always on time too much. I work too hard. And we don't like to tell people, well, I'm kind of lazy. You know what, I kind of, I like to take a nap at my desk every day about 3 o'clock. I hope you don't come around by then. Or, you know what, I like to, if if I can, I'm going to take some money from the till and not tell you about it. We don't brag about our weaknesses. We brag about our strengths. We like to let people know what's so great about us. But here's the thing. Whatever your strength you think you have, and you all have, we all have, well, this is my greatest strength. This is my greatest strength. Ability. This is, this is what I'm best at. Whatever strength you have, you don't depend on God in that area. Whatever it is. I'm great with financial management. I can, I can do this and I can make money and save money. And earn. I, I do all this great. Good. That's a wonderful strength. But too often we look at that and say, okay, since I can do this by myself, I don't need God. I'm a great communicator, man. I can make people feel good, and I can, I can challenge people. I can do all these things. Great. That's a wonderful strength to have. But if it's, we think it's our strength, we don't need God in it. Our strengths are actually weak, our weaknesses. In areas that we think we're strong, we don't depend on God. And God wants us and needs us to depend on him in everything. So when God takes something from us, when he breaks us, it's not out of malice. It's out of love to help us realize our need for him. Every one of us have weaknesses, and they're nothing to be ashamed of. They're to be gloried in because in the areas that we are weak, God gives us his strength. Matthew 5, 3 says, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. You know, we think being poor in spirit doesn't sound like a good thing. Being poor in anything doesn't sound like a good thing. Can we at least be middle class in spirit? That way we can take care of some of the stuff that we need for ourselves. And, you know, we can find the resources to do what we need to get done. We can try harder and maybe accomplish what we want. But God is not found in our strengths. He's found in our weaknesses. That's where we see God providing. That's where we see God working through us. Now, this starts with salvation, of course. Seeing yourself as too weak to save yourself and understanding you have to rely on his finished work on the cross. Seeing ourselves as unable to do what needs to be done to achieve salvation. Living a perfect, righteous, sinless life. So we can't do that. So Jesus, because we were weak in that area, he came and did for us what we could never do. He lived a perfect life, a sinless life, completely fulfilled the law. He died in our place and rose again to show that he was God and that the work of salvation was complete. We are weak, so his strength did what we couldn't. But it it goes past salvation. God wants us to see our weakness in every area of our life. We are to rejoice 
in our weaknesses because our strengths are where we forget God. Our strengths are dangerous to the believer. Look at verse number 7 in 1 Kings 17. And it came to pass that after a while that the brook dried up because there had been no rain in the land. So things go from bad to worse for Israel and for Elijah. He's, I mean, he's got it pretty good, you got to admit. I mean, he goes to Ahab. He says, hey, God's gonna not, gonna, not going to let it rain until I say so. And then God hides him. So he's, he's by a brook. All he's doing is laying around all day, you know, drinking some water from the brook. The birds, whenever he's hungry, birds come and give him some bacon or something. And so he's got it pretty easy. But then the, the creek dries up. The birds stop coming. So now what God had been providing is not available to Elijah anymore. But that's okay because look what happens next. Look at verse number 8. And the word of the Lord came unto him, saying, Arise, get thee to Zarephath, which belongeth to Zidon, and dwell there. Behold, I have commanded a widow woman there to sustain thee. So he arose and went to Zarephath, and when he came to the gate of the city, behold, the widow woman... Oh, we're going to get to that next week. Sorry, I want to stop at verse 9. That's the story we're going to look at next week, because I don't want to get too deep into it. Uh, but anyway, this, this, this is the story where everything dries up, and so now Elisha is in greater need because his water source is gone, his food source is gone. So God says, I want you to go up and go to Zarephath. Zarephath was a city in Sidon, just a little bit north of, of Israel. Now, in Zidon, in Zarephath, in Sidon, Elisha meets a widow woman and asks her for something to eat. Now, widows were, were there were no there was not anything called a wealthy widow in this time. Widows were, were poor. They had to be taken care of by family. If they had sons, they had adult sons, they took care of them because whenever the husband died, the money never went to the wife. It always went to the children or his debts to be filled. So a widow, by definition, was a poor woman. And now there's a poor woman in a drought, no way to make money, no way to provide for herself. And so Elisha goes to her and asks her for something to eat. And she says, I'd love to, but I've only got enough flour and oil to make one biscuit. And I'm going to eat, make that. And me and my son are going to eat it. And then we're going to die. How many of y'all know how to make biscuits? Who knows how to make biscuits? Put your hand down, Parker. You don't. All right. Not enough of y'all know how to make biscuits. That's, that's. That's what's wrong with our culture right there. We don't know how to make biscuits right. It's pretty easy, but you need more than flour and oil. You mix flour and oil together and bake it, you're not getting a biscuit. You're getting like a, like a cracker. Nothing you really want to spread. I remember me and April first got married. I didn't know how to make biscuits, but I thought I did. And so, you know, she was, work, she was, uh, she was, no, she was at school at night. And so she had worked in her day. She was at school at night, and I was home. I'm like, I'm going to make, I'm gonna make some, some cinnamon biscuits for her when she gets home for a little treat. And so I got the flour, and I didn't take a recipe. I just dumped a bunch of flour in there, put some baking soda in there, put some cinnamon in there. And for some reason, I thought I needed eggs. So I put eggs in it. I made the best-looking cinnamon bricks you've ever seen in your life. They were gross. Now I know to make flat, how to make biscuits, but you need more than just flour and oil. But that's all this woman has. And she says, I, I, can't, I can't help you. I've only got enough for make one little, little cracker. And once I make that, me and my son, we're going to eat it and we're going we're gonna to die. She had just enough for one little meal. She'd given up hope. And Elisha tells her 
to trust God and do what he says. So this, this woman who had, had never met Elisha, he just walks off the street and says, hey, make me a biscuit. I can't. I don't have enough. I'll do it anyway. She, she does what he says. She makes him a biscuit or a cracker, and then she goes to make herself one nut one, and there's, there's enough flour for another one. And she goes to make her son one, and there's, a, there's enough flour and oil for another one. And the flour and the oil never ran out until the drought was over. Incredible miracle God did in Sidon. Now, who's another woman from Sidon that we talked about earlier in the message? Jezebel. He's in Jezebel's homeland. Who's the God that Jezebel worshipped? The Baal of weather, of nature. So God took Elisha from the ability to take care of himself, provide his own meals, provide his own housing, to relying on God to send raven every day to feed him and the brook to give him water. And God took him from that, and then he made him even weaker. He takes care of him through an incredible miracle in an enemy land. God had to show him that he was weak and could only find his strength in God. So that brings us to a third, th third thing that God's trying to teach us. The greater the need, the more glory to God. Again, Elijah enters the story pretty self-sufficient. He's got a job. He provides for himself. He cooks for himself or whatever. And God is, God is working to provide for him in that situation. We understand, as believers, we understand if you have a job and you have health and you can work and earn a living and you can make, even if you can make good money or enough money to get by, whatever God, job you have, God has given it to you. He's given you the abilities. So God is providing for you in that situation, but it's hard to see that sometimes. Because, yes, God gave you the strength, but you're the one using the strength. You know, God gave you the ability to, to, to get up and to drive a truck or to, to work at a restaurant or to do whatever it is you're doing, but you're the one doing it. So sometimes it's hard to see that God is providing in a situation like that, so God takes it away. Now, Elisha's being fed by, by birds and by a brook. He's being receiving water by the brook, and birds are coming to feed him. It's easier to see God in that situation as far as I know, there are no other recorded times in history where a guy slipped by a creek all day and birds brought him food. Now, I know there are recorded times in history where a guy slipped by the creek all day and the birds became his food, but they didn't bring him the food. They didn't come by and drop him off a steak or something. That's never happened before. So it's, it's easier to see God providing in that situation. God, Elijah had a need, so God provided for it in an amazing way. God received the glory. But then God made his need even greater. The brook dries up. The birds stop coming. So there's a greater need. So God provides for Elisha in a pagan land in an incredible way. God sent him to a woman with no way of providing for herself and her son, let alone Elijah, but the oil and the flour never dry up. This leaves no doubt that it is God providing. The greater the need, 
the greater the opportunity for God to display his power in our lives. Every miracle in the Bible starts with a problem. When God wants to show off his power, he does it by making us weak. See, God doesn't want you to put your talents on display. That's, that's not going to help anybody. That will impress people, but it won't help anyone. God wants us to put his talents and his power on display because he is the God and the Savior of all that call upon him. He chooses the weak to shame the strong. He chooses the simple to confound the wise and makes the weak strong. And he does that so that no one can boast in the presence of God, but we boast in Christ as our righteousness and Christ as our strength. See, that's why I try so hard, maybe, maybe too hard sometimes, to show you I'm not a super Christian. Because my awesome, super powerful walk with God that you can never achieve, it's not going to help you. It's not going to do anything for you. If I show you I'm a super Christian with it all together and I have all the answers, it, it may impress you, but it won't help you. I need to show you my weaknesses and display the grace and power of Christ in me. Because that's what will help you because you can seek the same grace and the same power from Christ in your weaknesses. See, God wants us to depend on him so weakness is an advantage. So rejoice in your weaknesses because that's where God's going to make you strong. The weaker you are, the bigger the need, the more God works through your life to make you strong and the more glory he receives. So that brings us to a question. Where has God made you weak? In your finances? In your relationships? In your health? He's made you weak there for you to trust him there. See, the unexpected things that happen to you is God working in you so you can see how weak you are so he can make you strong. God took Elijah to the brook, then to the poor widow's house, so he could grow the faith he needed to face the army in Mount Carmel. See, God could use Elijah to do greater things on Mount Carmel in chapter 18 because he taught him to trust him in chapter 17. God wants complete dependence, complete surrender, and total trust from us. That's what he uses to show his power on earth, not our skill. See, God doesn't want or need superhuman Christians with great talents He's looking for ordinary, weak people that are completely surrendered to him and depending on him. And he tears us down to produce that in us. See, strength leads to independence. Weakness produces dependence on God. So when God wants to fill your life with power, he breaks you to make you weak so you depend on him. And we're to rejoice in that. Before God can use a man greatly, 
He has to wound him deeply. That's what happened to Elisha. Look back at verse number, 10, uh, verse number 1 again in chapter 17. And Elisha, the Tisbite, he's, he's defined by where he is from. Now look at verse number 24, after God has broken him. Now by this I know that thou art a man of God. He went from being known from where he was to being known by who he belonged to. How do you define yourself? What gives you confidence? Where do you find your strength? Is your confidence in your strengths and talents or in God, His strength, and His grace in and through you? Do you trust that God will lead and provide for you wherever He leads you? Is your faith in Him or you? Let's pray. Heavenly Father. Thank you for listening to this message from New Grace. Our church is growing and our ministries are doing big things for Jesus. If you're looking for a way to get plugged in or would like more information about our church and our ministries, you can visit us online at reachingroanoke.com. Thanks so much for listening and have a blessed day.